0: those of you who haven't been at Catalyst, I'll just do a couple of introductions just so that you guys know what the journey that we've been going on for the last couple of weeks. Um, firstly, my name's Sam. I've got the absolute privilege of um, sharing the word the message with you this morning. And, you know, God's word is powerful. And what really encourages me to stand up here and, and not be fearful, because um, a lot of us struggle with public speaking now. I've had a lot of opportunities over the past few years to do that. So the human fear is... is is less, but there's always nerves and there's always an anxiety about, oh, what if I say something wrong? What if if people misunderstand me? You know, God's word is different to other human presentation. God's word is powerful and it says in the word that God's word will never return to him void. And that basically means, as a fancy way of saying, whenever God's Word gets preached, stuff happens. So I, I'm really excited um, about the fact that I get to share, because I know that it's, it's, got, it's got a little bit to do with me, because I get to stand here and deliver it to you, but God's Word is powerful in and of itself. So I want to encourage you this morning, just be mindful of what God, through His Holy Spirit, is stirring in your hearts and minds. We've been going on a journey as a, as a church family through 1 Peter, um, which is a cool book. In fact, all the books of the Bible are cool. I shouldn't solo that one out. That word about hope is really significant because Paul's, um, we've heard, those of you who have been here for the series have heard that hope is something that these people that Peter is writing to really need because they're having a bit of a tough time back in back in the late 60s, not, not the 1960s, we're talking about AD 60s, and they're suffering extreme um, hate and persecution from people who don't really like what they're on about. And what they're on about is spreading the word of God. So that word of hope is really something that Peter is trying to instill in his audience, which is really cool. Last week, Matt shared previous passage that's prior to chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. And that section was talking about this idea of those who've committed their lives to Jesus being holy priests. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I read that passage, I go, oh, holy priests, I don't wear a cool white cap and like diamonds on my chest and that sort of thing like a priest. It doesn't actually mean a whole lot to us because we're in a different cultural context to that. But Matt, what what Matt shared last week, I think, really unpacked that idea and, and applied it to our context nowadays. And what that means, basically, is that each of us has full access to God, each of us has a special and unique identity as a son or daughter of God, and each of us has a unique role in the church. So the priest's analogy was just something that, God, um, that Peter was using to basically say that to his audience. So I just wanted to, to give a bit of a background because that's where we're coming from um, into this next, next um, bit of Peter. Okay, so we're going to we're gonna delve into the passage and I think we've got a really good opportunity. We've got lots of people here that have voices um, other than Sam. I've got a couple of volunteers that I've given sheets of paper. Now, I still have four sheets of paper that I need some volunteers for. So, Joel, can I delegate this to you? Can you find four people for me? Awesome. Have we got four? Okay, so who's got verses 11 to 12? Dear friends, I warn you as... Temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbours. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honourable behaviour and they will give honour to God when He judges the world. Awesome. Thanks, Bray. Who's got verses 13 to 14? We're reading from the New Living Translation too for those of you who are following along. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Thanks, Chloe. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honour those who do right. Awesome. Thanks, Chloe. Who's got verses 15 to 17? SJ, thank you. It is God's will that you, your honourable life should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love family, the family of the believers. Fear God and respect the King. Awesome. Thanks, SJ. This is 18 to 20. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure a just treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. And verses 21 to 23... For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Awesome. Thanks, Kirst. And 23 to 25. Thanks, Jono. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you were healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Awesome. Thanks, Jono. Wow, what a passage. Slaves, obey your masters. That's not really relevant to today. Obey your government. I opened this passage up a couple of weeks ago and, and looked at it and went, oh gosh, what am I going to say about the slaves? Um, and what am I going to say about submitting to government? I was driving in my car, um, well, I was driving in my car every day this week, but on Tuesday particularly, I was, I was thinking about this idea of obeying government. And I think I counted up at least five or six things that I did uh, against the law in the space of about 30 minutes. Um, just just from being, not deliberately, but just not being consciously aware of it, you know, not stopping at a stop sign, but slowing down and, and going through, um, not indicating properly, you know, these things, it happens to us all. <laughs> but there is a temptation with this passage to read it, skim read it and go, okay, I've got to submit to the government. Right, that means I've got to obey all the laws. Um, and there's a, there's a temptation too with the slaves part to go, oh, wow, so if I'm working for someone who's not that nice, I just have to do everything they tell me and God will be glorified. Now, that is true, but there's a deeper theme that God really wants us, I believe, to get out of this passage. So that's what I want to delve into today. You know, there's a million different perspectives that we can take on a, on a biblical passage God's truth is—is is, I'm not saying it's relative. God's truth is concrete, but we all have a different, um, different bunch of experiences and a different way of looking at things at, at, the, at the truth. So, what I'm going to present this morning on this passage is by no means a comprehensive um, analysis of the whole passage. So, just keep that in mind. But I want to focus on the things that I feel like God really pointed out to me this week, and I believe there's a uh, there is a significant, a pointy response that He's placed. On my heart to share with us as a body um, so whether you're visiting or you're, you're here if there's stuff after the message that you're wrestling with then and stuff that's sort of gotten stirred up, then I would encourage you to talk to someone. It doesn't have to be someone here, but there's, there's plenty of people here that have experience in, in prayer ministry and um, would lovingly, would love to sit down and work through stuff with you. So I just want to put that disclaimer on it. It's not a super, super nice, nice message. Um, there is a little bit of um, stuff that could arouse a little bit of, I guess, past, past baggage, if you, if you know what I mean. So um, I went through, let's just talk about the context. So what I want to do is I just want to work through a little bit of the, not the theology, but just the, the meat in the text, and then we'll talk about how that applies to our life, because I think it's really important that we delve into to what God's saying here. Let's just talk about the context quickly. So as I said before, the Christians back in um, what we now refer to as modern-day Turkey, who Peter is writing to, are pretty despised in the first century society that they're living in. They're just about to actually suffer one of the most intense persecutions that the church suffered. Some of you will know about the, the Emperor Nero, who was governing at the time. Now, Nero was a pretty mean guy. He set, actually set fire to the city of Rome in about 67, 65 AD, correct me if I'm wrong, Johnno, around about that time. Historians are not sure exactly why he did it, but the most prominent theory is that he was just bored and he wanted something to do. So he said he city on fire pretty pretty uh, mean stuff word got around about that and Nero was kind of a little bit scared that the people were going to depose him I suppose because if you set fire to your own city obviously your citizens are probably going to vote you out at the next election Um, imagine if Malcolm turned no I won't talk about that anyways so they're sitting under the government of this this dude who's pretty mean and Peter is saying, submit to him. So automatically we go, wow, there's actually something really deep going on here. So these, this is the context that, that Peter's writing these, these words in. So what's Peter saying to these believers through this passage? So to open up the passage, Peter uses this analogy. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So he's using this this wartime analogy, which is actually okay for us to stomach because we still have an army and we still understand the concepts of war. Back then, obviously, the readers um, in 1 Peter would have been thinking about the Romans. Now, this is not an actual picture from 64 AD. This is obviously a a reenactment, but it gives you an idea for for the type of... um, of armour and I guess the imagery that Peter's talking about here. So he's using this analogy that everyone will understand, all his readers will understand. So he says there's a battle going on. It's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. He says the Christian, his readers, those who've devoted themselves to following Jesus, must fight in this battle by resisting temptation. So he's saying don't submit. There's a link here, the same word that's used in Romans 12.2, about not conforming to the world, is also used in this passage here. So the idea is that there's this army, there's this force that's battling against those who've committed to following Jesus that we need to resist, that the Christians in Turkey need to resist. And it's a hard battle. But he says in verse 12 and 15 and 16, Peter hints at the fact that if you choose to exercise your freedom and overcome and fight, Then God gets glorified. Not only does God get glorified, but we actually benefit because we're not overrun by this, this force that's battling against us. So this is the imagery that Peter opens with. It's pretty intense. He says there's a battle going on. And that's that really that's something that we need to really take into consideration here. You know, we don't suffer under Nero. We don't suffer foreign countries invading us. So this imagery is a little bit displaced from us, but there is a battle going on. There's spiritual forces that are trying to get in here and skew with our minds, basically, and we need to resist that. So that's, that's how Peter opens, and it sets the scene for what he's going to say next. So now Peter, having set the scene with the battle, starts talking about the specific battle that these believers are, are fighting. And This is actually a battle against, not physically against the rulers, but it's actually a battle against becoming bitter, I believe. It's a battle against giving in to the temptation to get bitter, to get angry, to act up, to speak out, to start a revolt against their corrupt government. Peter says something quite radical to the believers here. He says you need to respect everyone and the king he says you need to love the believers and fear God. Now, those last two dot points sound pretty good, don't they? They're manageable. But when you're living under the government of a dude who sets fire to your city just because he wants to, and then I forgot to mention too, so Nero then blamed that on the Christians when he found out that his reputation was going to be, well, he was going to get voted out, I suppose. He blamed it on the Christians and then the persecution broke out, obviously. So they are, sir, they, they are living under this government that's quite corrupt, but not only is corrupt, but is targeting them. So to say respect your king is quite radical. Now, the word submit, the word respect is used, and the word honour is used in this passage. There's a very clear distinction about the response to these, different, uh, these three different groups of people here that I think we need, to, we need to just take a minute to stop and look at. So we're to respect everyone in the king. We're to love the believers and we're to fear God. Very different responses. He's not saying you need to fear Nero or your ruler. Fearing is, I guess, to give you a picture, this is submitting, this is honouring, this is respecting. Um, our, our friend the guard here is just watching the US president step off the plane, and he is, he's submitting, he's respecting, he's honouring President Barack Obama's authority and, and headship. This is kind of like what Peter, I believe, was saying to the believers that their response should be to their government. However, if this guard was down on his knees with his hands up, worshipping him, that would be fear. That's the response that we have to God. So there's a very clear distinction there. We're to obey God and fear God and live our lives in awe of him. We're not to obey and fear and live our lives in awe of our King, but we are to respect and honour them, is what he's saying to the believers. Is that clear, that distinction? And then loving the believers is obviously a whole new idea in itself. So that's, that's talking about committing to doing life with each other and encouraging one another, um, which obviously you don't do with your King either. So I guess just to sum that bit up, honour, submission and respect is about an attitude rather than an exclusive action that loves stands in awe and obeys. So there's that distinction between our responses or their, their responses to the king and God, which is really important. What does Peter say is the response when we get a tough word to obey our king that we don't really like? What do the believers do with this? They've been told to respect and honour Nero and the corrupt government. That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard. But he says that we've got to follow Jesus' example because as his references to the passage in Isaiah 53 suggest, Jesus set an absolutely perfect example of how to do this. You know, he suffered unimaginable persecution from those who had governance over him. And Peter's saying, look to Jesus. You've got an example right there. The word example, for those of you who've heard me preach before, I really like my Greek words. I haven't put a Greek word up there because I didn't have time. But the Greek word, for example, refers to actually a concept in Roman society where it's actually the alphabet. It's how kids would learn the, the Roman alphabet, um, if you like. So when Peter says, follow Jesus' example, he's saying, Learn your ABCs from Jesus. Like, literally, look at Jesus' life, study it, and copy it. So, it's a really, really deep word there. Jesus didn't deceive anyone in verse 23. He didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten revenge. Rather, he left the judgment to God and he willingly bore suffering for our sins. In direct contrast to a worldly response that, when suffers, gets angry, wants to retaliate, threatens revenge, takes judgment on themselves to enact that out, and certainly doesn't bear others' suffering. So there's a really clear distinction here between Jesus' example that the the believers in Turkey are to follow and a worldly response. There was a group of Jewish zealots at the time that were having a worldly response to the situation. They had actually formed a bit of a sect and a a rebellion, I suppose, against, against the Roman Empire, if you like. And they were very clearly wanting to retaliate and revenge against the corrupt authority. So Peter's actually saying that's not what you're supposed to do in this scenario. You're supposed to humbly respect and honour your government, even in the midst of persecution. Don't start a rebellion, but trust me with this. So what's the application? I need some volunteers who are willing to handle some jelly beans. All right. Peter, you have the incredible responsibility of not putting it in your pocket and devouring it later. Could you open those ones and give a couple to Jacob, please? Hang on. Actually, I'll ask, we'll ask Jacob. Jacob, how many jelly beans would you like to eat? A couple. A couple. That's awesome. Great decision. Oh, here we go. Fantastic. Now, Jacob, can you tell me why you like jelly beans? I don't know. You don't know. That's okay. Pete, why do you think, why do you like jelly beans? Who doesn't? (laughs) That's a fair response. Do you know what jelly beans have got in them, Jacob? Sugar. Lots and lots of sugar. That's why lots and lots of people like lots and lots of jelly beans, because there's sugar in there. Now, if you had a decision, I'm going to ask his parents this one actually. If Jacob had a decision, about whether he was to eat two jelly beans or ten jelly beans, what would he choose, Mum and Dad? He'd choose ten. Great, that's the answer I was looking for. Phew. I thought you were going to be really really um, healthy and say, I'll just take the two, Jacob, so that's why I asked your parents. Fantastic. Very good. All right, everyone give Jacob a round of applause. That's just something small that I wanted to, I guess, an example of how we like good things that have lots of short-term benefit. I want to go back to this idea that we started with about the battle. You know, when we want to eat jelly beans, there is a battle going on, isn't there? We have two options. We can either choose 10 jelly beans because we know that we're going to really enjoy that and we're going to get a sugar high and start bouncing off the walls or we can choose to have self-control and and just eat the two jelly beans, don't we? Now, both those decisions have long-term implications. If I choose the 10 jelly beans, what's going to happen? I'm going to bounce off the walls. That's correct. What might happen, if I ate 100 jelly beans, say, what's going to happen in a couple of hours? Stomach, yep, that's it. I'm not going to feel too good, am I? I'll probably have a bit of a sugar rush and then I'll probably have a bit of a sugar loo. And that's not going to feel really good. If I choose the two jelly beans, then it's going to be tough in the short term because I want 10 jelly beans. But long term, I'm not going to suffer those bad consequences. And I think... This is an analogy that's used a lot when we're talking about the truth and about God's way of doing things. But I really think it is applicable to what we're talking about here with the battle. I've got a picture there. That's pretty cool. So we've got these worldly desires that are waging war against our souls, just like we really want to take those 10 jelly beans. It's really easy to get imprisoned by these desires because this is the thing, right? And this is the point that I want you guys to sort of just wrestle with. We think we have freedom in choosing the 10 jelly beans, don't we? Yeah, I've got a choice. That decision actually imprisons me later on because I'm suffering consequences that I don't really like. So sometimes we view choosing God's way as quite restrictive because we see the things of the world and we go, I want that. And we think we've got freedom to make that choice and we think that choice is going to bring us freedom. But actually it comes back to bite us. It's much harder to resist and remain free. And what I mean by remain free is that if I choose the two jelly beans, I actually experience freedom because I'm not bound up and imprisoned by those yucky feelings that stop me doing things, that make me enter into a very bad mood, and ask myself, why on earth did I choose the ten jelly beans? So we actually experience um, this imprisonment after choosing what's not healthy for us. Conversely, if we choose the two jelly beans, we're experiencing freedom because we're not suffering from the negative implications of that decision. So often we, have, we are tempted to view God as wanting to restrict us, but that is not the truth. When we choose to give in to worldly temptations, we're actually making it harder for ourselves because there's negative things, there's unhealthy things that happen. So that is the basis of what I want to share Um, about bitterness because this, I believe, is what Peter is talking about and the underlying theme that I believe the Lord wants us to wrestle with this morning. I just want to read something from a book that I'm reading at the moment. It was super, super relative to what I was preparing you know those times where you, you're preparing something and you open up a book, you open up a web page, you open up Facebook or something like that and stuff just falls in front of you and you're like, that's exactly what I need. Well, that's so super relevant. That sort of happened with this, this book that I'm, I'm wading my way through. So I just want to read a little bit about what John Piper in his book, Battling Unbelief, says about bitterness, if I can find my page. Beautiful. Okay, so we've got this idea about bitterness. What is bitterness? What's our response? John Piper talks a little bit about this. When we're battling bitterness, the answer is that we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. All the wrongs that have been done to us by believers were avenged in the death of Jesus. This is implied in the simple but staggering fact that all the sins of God's people were laid on Jesus. The suffering of Christ was the recompense of God on every hurt. I've ever received from a fellow Christian. Therefore, Christianity does not make light of sin. It does not add insult to our injury. On the contrary, it takes the sins against us so seriously that to make them right, God gave His only Son to suffer more than we could ever make anyone suffer for what they've done to us. So that's a response to, to bitterness that Jesus had. That's regarding believers, because there's this idea that with believers, Jesus pays for the wrong that's done to us. What about with unbelievers? John Piper talks a little bit about this. If anyone had to get angry and be bitter and vengeful, it was Jesus. talks about Jesus again. What this means is that Jesus had faith in the future grace of God's righteous judgment. He did not need to avenge himself for all the indignities he suffered. Because he entrusted his cause to God. He left vengeance in God's hands and prayed for his enemies' repentance. So there's this idea that I really want to just unpack in the next few minutes that when we're tempted to get bitter, we need to look to Jesus because he's paid for the sins that our brothers and sisters in the church do to us on the cross, and he's paid for the sins that those who will not believe. As well. He will judge them on the day of judgment. So we, we can be confident in God's judgment. That's just what I want to unpack a little bit here. You know, we all struggle with bitterness. A friend calls us a hurtful name. Our parents misunderstand us and get angry with us. An ex partner might tell lies about us to people in our social circle. Our kids say they hate us. A trustworthy friend goes behind our back. Family members disown us and others may take advantage of our generosity. When these things happen to us, it's super, super easy to want to take revenge. We struggle with this, these feelings of anger, of injustice, of why did that person do that to me? I'm so angry and I want to get back at them. We're tempted to just wallow in our, in our negative feelings. It's a reality of our human condition. We've all, I'm sure, had instances in this past week where we've done wrong to someone else or we've been wronged by someone else. And I'm sure you guys know the feeling of battling with that bitterness. It's not easy, is it? It feels yucky. It's easy to wallow in those feelings, but the example that Jesus gives us is that we must push on. And I want to look a bit at that. So the first application for us is that we need to be aware of the battle. So that was where I was talking about the jelly beans. We need to be aware that there's this battle going on in our minds. There's a battle just in the way that we're tempted to eat lots of jelly beans to give in to bitterness, to feel those feelings. How do we do this? What if, what if it seems too hard? What am I to do in this? in this instance? This dude... Does anyone know a dude called uh, Young One Son? Yes, awesome, fantastic. So I'm actually surprised. I didn't think anyone would know. So there you go. This dude is was ah, his story was so cool, and it really illustrates, I think, a good response to business and the response that we need to to look um, to, to model. This dude was a pastor in Korea back at the tail end of, I think, the Second World War. And the communists invaded, um, sorry, the Korean War. I'm getting my wars mixed up. This dude was living in a village and pastoring a church um, in Korea. And the communists came in and invaded his town. And long story short, his two sons got, got murdered. And after the communists had been pushed back and the original government had Regain control of the town, they put the dude who was basically conned into killing his sons by the communists on trial. And this pastor basically said some really cool stuff. I, I don't want to mix it up, so I'm going to read again, because I think this, this passage really demonstrates and explains his response really well. And I thank God that he has given me love to seek to convert and adopt my son, the enemy who killed my dear boys. Adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. These were the words of Korean pastor Yang won Son. The year was 1948. The place was the town of Sun chun near the 38th parallel. A band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief period and had executed the pastor's, son, pastor's son's two older two boys, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out, Chai's son, a young man in the village, was identified uh, as the one who had fired the murderous shots. So this is the dude that killed their sons, um, this pastor's sons. His execution was ordered. Pastor Son requested that the charges be dropped and that the 13-year-old sister uh, and that Chai's son be released into his custody for adoption. Rachel, his 13-year-old sister of the, the 13-year-old sister of the murdered boys, testified to support her father's incredible request. Only then did the court agree to release Chai's son. He became the son of the pastor and a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. So forgive my stumbling over words, but I hope you guys get the uh, understanding the context and how this links in to our battle against bitterness. This dude had, a, had an opportunity to very uh, very tangibly initiate revenge. The dude who killed his family was going to be hanged, but he stepped in because of his faith, and said, no, I see an opportunity here. I don't see it as my place to judge and make a decision about this man's life. And he chose to let him off. And then the court, seeing that the father, that the family, member, family members had decided that they wanted to forgive this guy, let um, the accused off. Just like Jesus trusted God to judge justly, Um, this man did. Just like Jesus prayed for those who hurt him, I'm sure this man did too. That That would have been a tough decision. You would have had to pray about that for quite a while, I'm sure. And just as Jesus laid down his worldly rights, so this man did. And that challenges our culture very, very clearly, because we live in a culture that believes in justice. We live in a culture that says, "Stand up for your human rights." I'm studying a social work degree, and so human rights is the um, is the truth, if you like, for the world. Um, the world of social work, I suppose, there's all these people that are going out and trying to help people um, based on human rights. It's the cornerstone of their worldview. So we live in a society that's dominated by rights, but yet Peter is talking to these, these Turkish Christians in AD 60 who are being uh, just horribly persecuted by their government and saying, lay those rights down. Don't, don't get angry. This pastor who could have said, no, I, I feel so hurt by the fact that you've murdered my family members that you deserve to go to the firing squad. But he decided to follow his saviour and say no. I'm going to lay down those worldly rights and I'm going to submit to God. I have a personal um, story to share just quickly and it's actually about a very special friend that I wasn't expecting to be here this morning. It's all right. I'm the one that, that, that suffers here. So last time Lily was over, I said something that, that hurt Lily and I didn't think before I, I, I spoke, I realised afterwards that I had a very twisted Perception of, uh, of something that I thought w- was, was right. And I, I said something in that moment that really, really hurt her. And sorry to reinforce the stereotypes, but that doesn't happen very often for me. Um, <laughs> and that's not something I, I say that, I, I want to say that with complete humility, but that really shocked me. And I had to deal with some pretty, oh, just con- confronting um, emotions in, the, in that space. But you know what, I, I came to a place where I realised that on the flip side, where I was seeing Lil battle with a little bit of, no doubt, negative emotions in that space, where she was probably tempted to get a little bit bitter, that God has decided to send Jesus to avenge that wrong and to say to Lily, Lily, you are not what Sam said. What Sam said is not true. And I'm going to show that by sending my son to die. That's radical. We don't think about the gospel in this way sometimes, um, a lot of the times. We go, Jesus, yeah, you paid for my sin. Great. He's actually avenging the wrong things that get done to us because he says, Kelly, Darren, Eli, whoever you are, I care enough about you that what that person said, what that person did is not true and I'm going to send my son to die to show you that. That's radical. Doesn't that change our perspective on the gospel? Jesus died not only to just pay for my sins, the things that I do wrong, the bad words that I said that hurt people, he died to avenge that so that a child of God who's been wrongly done by, gets to be reminded of their true identity in God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Because that's, that's really what I want us to take away from this, I guess, this message. God is calling each and every one of us, despite the, the negative emotions, despite the struggles that we have with people who have done stuff to us that are not right, that hurt us, God is calling us to lay that down and to trust that Jesus and his sacrifice paid and covered and avenged that wrongdoing. And if we don't do that, then we're in a really unhealthy position because bitterness festers. The enemy gets a foothold in our life and he disarms us from walking in true freedom that Jesus paid for us. So in summary, what I believe we need to take away from this passage is that we can honour those who hurt us, not love, not fall down at their feet and worship and, and say how great they are, but we can respect the fact that they are a person who God has created. And we don't need to get bitter at them because we are free and satisfied in the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us and when we do this god's put on show and the people around us see how good he is see how life transforming the power of his truth and his holy spirit is the word glory is used uh, a number of times through this letter at the end of the day this is what it's about it's not about us it's about God being glorified. We find true freedom, true wholeness, true health when our lives are lived not for ourselves but for God's glory. So that's, that's all I've got to share. Um, and I just want to reiterate, if, if that stuff brings up negative experiences, brings up old hurts for you, please go and talk to someone. I don't believe that anyone is here this morning by accident. We say it a lot. But the God who lovingly created you cares about your heart. He cares about your hurt. And he wants to help you walk walk through that and deal with that so that you can walk in the freedom that he paid for you. So I really want to encourage you, don't sweep this under the rug. If he's bringing stuff up, Talk to someone, spend some time praying by yourself it doesn 't have to you don 't have to respond right now, but do something to respond to your loving heavenly Father who 's pointing out an area of of unhealthiness in your life that 's hurting you because he cares for you. yeah, why don't we just pray? God? I just thank you so much for your glory. I thank you so much for the hope that we can have in knowing that you rule the world and that you are over absolutely everything that happens to us. God, I thank you that you love us and that you sent Jesus to die, not only just to pay for the wrongdoings that we commit to others, but also to avenge the wrongs that are done to us so that we could be reminded of our true identity in you. God, I just pray right now that in spite of the the frailty of the messenger, God, that you would work. Father, that you would reveal yourself right now to the hearts of those who are struggling. And that, Lord, they would seek the appropriate help. God, I just pray for protection over minds. God, as we interact with fallible human beings day to day, God, help us to constantly have that picture of you laying down your life for us in mind so that we can lay down our bitterness, so that we can resist the temptation and fight the good fight to win. God, I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you that you, you care about them, Lord. You love them because you created them. God, we give you all the glory. We want our lives to be a better reflection of you. Because we know that that is the most freeing way to live, God. I pray this in Jesus' name.